For over four centuries, the Roman army was the dominant military force in the world. It resulted in Rome's control over an empire that was larger than anything that had existed in the world up until that time. Now, part of the Romans' army de army's domination was in the armor that each legionary wore. And we're seeing, and we're going to continue to see, that actually many of the pieces of armor included technological revelation or, or, or uh, innovations that were, that were revolutionary for their time. But there was something else that really set them apart, and it was the discipline that was demanded by the Roman generals that required each of the soldiers to wear their armor at all times, any time that they were out of their camp. Now, many of the soldiers hated this. They argued that it was unnecessary. They, the armor was heavy and cumbersome, and, and they, you know, many of them lived in especially the Middle East, and it was warm in the summer especially, and the armor was incredibly hot and uncomfortable. And, and so they argued, you know, that why do we need to wear this when there's no battle, where there's no enemy, where, you know, just, we just need to wear it at the, you know, when the battle comes. But the generals understood that if they wore it all the time, they would get used to it. And so when the battle came, because they were used to the weight, they were used to moving with it, they would move with an ease and a comfort that would allow them to have success. And this was something that served them for, for, not, for hundreds of years, even to the degree where it became part of the, of the daily inspection. During the reign of Caesar Augustus, slightly shortly before the birth of Jesus, the Roman army developed a routine of these inspections that, that they followed for over 300 years. Every morning, the centurion would gather out the, you know, his troop, his hundred soldiers, and, and each legionary would come out in full armor, standing before the centurion, and he would go one after another. And as he came to the soldier, each one would be expected to, to take their chest and to thump it against their, che their chest protector, the breastplate. And, uh, and that was the place where the armor was thickest, and they would thump it, and they would cry out, integritis, which, from which we get our English word integrity the idea of wholeness and completeness, entirety. And the centurion would look and see that he was completely armored out and he would hear the ring of that, arm, of that breastplate and it would tell them that the armor was in good shape and he would then move on to the next man. And there was an integrity, the armor of integrity that continued to serve the legions well. For over, so, for over four centuries, they, they held the line against every enemy. But over time, as the fourth century got into the fourth century, in the 300s, there was a decline against, uh, in the Roman Empire that began to infect even the army. And the soldiers beforehand had complained. They complained what was too heavy and it was hot, we don't need to wear it. And, and, and the generals never allowed them to go outside of camp without their army. But over time, they began to not only listen, but to give in to the demands. And at first, there didn't seem to be a difference. But in the decades that followed, suddenly they began to lose some of these battles. And at the end of the fourth century, one of the Roman uh, generals, looking at how the, you know, the, uh, suddenly the army had, had lost its cutting edge, reflected on it, and he pointed as one of the key factors, giving up this daily inspection and this commitment to wear the, the armor on a daily basis. Listen to what he said. When because of negligence and laziness, parade ground drills were abandoned, the customary armor began to feel heavy since the soldiers rarely, if ever, wore it. Therefore, they first asked the emperor to set aside the breastplate and mail and then the helmets. So our soldiers fought the Goths without any protection for the heart and head and were often beaten by archers. 
Although there were many disasters which led to the loss of great cities, no one tried to restore the armor to the infantry. They, uh, they took their armor off, and when they, the armor came off, so came off their integrity. And you look at that and you say, that makes sense. This idea that, that they took it off, and next thing you know, within decades, suddenly they're losing battles, and the barbarians were storming the gates, and, and this, soldier, this general looks at it and said, well, a key reason was we stopped having that daily inspection. We stopped having that commitment to wear the armor at all times. And, and suddenly it was heavy, and they didn't know how to wear it in battle. Now, when I look at this, this is part of what I think that God is trying to tell us here in Ephesians 6, that he's telling us that we are likewise in this spiritual battle. And, and because of that, we need this discipline of putting on the armor daily. Now, if you have your Bibles open, look at me with the passage we just read a minute ago, and, and, he, and he's talking about this reality of spiritual battle. And, and we may think, well, I'm not in a battle now, it's daily, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm, you know, I'm just going out in the city, there's nothing going on. But look at what God says. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Basically, he's, when he says finally, he's referring to everything that had, he had already said in Ephesians. Now, if you want to know what it means to live out this calling that I've given you, to live it out in your you know, marriages, in your family, in your workplace, in your, in your life, in your morality. If you want to know what it means, you're not going to do it by your own strength. It's going to come not through self-discipline, but finding God's strength, living in his strength. And what does it then mean to put on the strength of the Lord? Well, practically then, he tells us it's taking up this armor that God gives us. That's, that's the means of strength. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, just in case we may think, well, that's just when the battle comes. We don't need to wear it on a daily basis. Then he continues to warn us in verse 12. You know, if we don't think we're in a battle, we don't realize the spiritual dimensions of life. For you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in a battle. We are in a battle against a powerful enemy that is organized and is committed to our destruction. And since that's the issue, he continues in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, here's what we think. We might, I'm not an evil day. I'm not there. We don't know when the evil day comes. And the fact is, is that God calls us, like the Roman soldiers, to put it on daily so that it becomes normal for us. It becomes comfortable. There's a daily discipline so that when the day comes, we're prepared and we can stand. But what does it mean to put on the armor? Well, to simplify it, it's, it means broadly looking at the blessings that come from our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then not only understanding them in our mind, but believing them in the core of our heart, believing them to be true in a sense that they're in our heart so that we act as if they're true. We, we, we believe them and live out as if they were completely true. That's the armor of God. And so what are we called to do? We're daily, we're called to put on these benefits. Last week, we looked at the first piece, the belt of truth and what that means. And, and this morning, we're going to look at the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace. So then what is the breastplate that he's talking about, this breastplate of righteousness? What, what are we called to here? Well, it's something that guards the heart. And when I talk about the heart, what I'm talking about here is what we believe about ourselves, who we believe ourselves to be our sense of identity. And from our sense of identity grows our sense of worth and our sense of value. And that's what Satan seeks to attack. And that's what God gives us armor to protect. 
Now, when you think of this breastplate, let's go back and think of the Roman soldier. It was a breastplate that he would put on specifically to protect the, the vital organs. So when you're in, in the battle there, you know, you're, you're, in fact, they would call it the heart protector. And you have your heart, you have you know, all the vital organs that are here, and, and, and the enemy would go against those vital organs because if they can pierce our heart, they've won the battle. Now, to give a picture of it, it was, you know, simply, usually something like this. This was a reproduction, a, a single piece of bronze that would be put on kind of over, over the shoulders and specifically then over the front and then strapped on in the back, attached to the belt so that it was very tight. And it would cover basically everything from the neck down to the, you know, to, to the, you know, the belly, the middle of the, the waist. And we're called to put on this as this breastplate to protect our heart, in a sense, our identity of who we are in Christ. And we need it because that's where Satan's going to attack. He's going to attack against our core identity of who we are. Now, here's what we need to realize. For those of you who have a relationship with Christ, who have asked God to forgive you for your sins, what the Bible teaches is that there's an essential truth that we all need to understand that is consistently taught in the Bible as something that is foundational. This idea that God has forgiven you. You are made righteous before God. You are considered righteous and holy. You are made pure before him. Now, it's not because of what we do. See, religion is, 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 fo is focused basically, well, am I right? Have I done enough? Have I tried hard enough? Have I kept the rules? And it's about trying to have our own righteousness. But the Bible says for me to be righteous, I have to be perfect and and that's why it says in Romans 3.23, no, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous before God. None of us meet that standard. And even when the Bible gives us the law, when he gives us the Ten Commandments, it isn't so that we can try to keep them and say, well, I've done enough. Have I gotten in? And actually, what the Ten Commandments do is it shows us that none of us can keep them well enough. It's actually something that points us to a need for a righteousness not from ourselves, not by our keeping the rules, but a righteousness that's from God. That's what it said, the verse is right before this in Romans 3, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. It's not about what we do, and this was what's promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, meaning everything in the Bible was pointing towards this provision of God, a righteousness from above. And we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That is the only way that we are made righteous with Christ. Now, if you, are, you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, what you need to realize, your sins are not only forgiven, they are paid for in full. That, that it's not just God, well, I'll forget about them. No, they deserve to be punished. They were, that they are literally taken off of us. They are put on Jesus. Jesus paid the price, the penalty for that sin. But he not only takes the sins off of us, he literally takes the righteousness of, dry, of Jesus, his perfection, and he puts it on us. So he sees us like he would see his son. He sees us in his perfection. Now, the Bible teaches that this is vital, that we not only know, but act as if it's true. In fact, it's so important if you go back for those that were with us when we first started this whole study in the book of Ephesians. If you remember, the book of Ephesians starts by Paul saying, okay, this is the foundational truth that I want you to know. This is something that I need you to understand. This is who you are in Christ. Look at how it starts, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as a, uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of his will. Now, this is incredible. When it says that he, that he chose us, that we should be holy and blameless, literally, that the plural of holy is saints, that he chose us that we would be saints before him, that we would be blameless before him. Now, some of you might, like me, have a Roman Catholic background. You're, oh, the saints, well, that's those extreme people, those, those people that earned it, that did it. No, the Bible says there aren't just a few saints. It's if you're a follower of Christ here, you are a saint. I mean, that's, that's you know, we should call each other and say, you know, hey, you know, St. Bob, how you doing? Hey, I'm St. Mike. And you see, you know, that's, you know, that's St. You know, Joe, you know, but that's almost, that's how we should almost refer to ourselves. That's who we are in Christ. It's amazing. We're saints. We're blameless. And it continues, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed in us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have that position not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. That is our identity. That is your identity. That is who you are. You are God's saint. You are blameless before him. You have redemption through his blood. You are made righteous. You are made holy before him. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? That's found a foundational truth. But because it's so important, it's a truth that Satan loves to attack. He loves to come at us and undermine this truth, to undermine this righteousness that God believes. He, he undermines this core belief in our heart about who we think we are. He tries us to get, to get us to think, you know, but no, you know, no, this is what I've done in the past. Well, I've got these sins in my past. I don't want to admit to anybody, and, but, but I remember them, and, and that's who I am. You know, how could I ever really be holy before God? You know, that, that, you know that, how could I be used of God? And I'll talk to people all the time that will say, no, you don't understand what I've done. God could never use me. I could never really be... We believe a lie. We believe the lie of, of Satan. We allow ourselves to be defined by the sin in our past. And here's why it's so important. When we do that, we then live down to that low view of ourselves. So if I think of myself as a sinner, therefore, I'm going to, when I'm tempted, I'm going to say, well, that's what people like me do. On the other hand, if I really believe that I'm someone who God has made righteous, that that's my identity, that he now calls me holy, the result will be when I'm tempted by sin, I'm going to say, well, well I'm a holy person. <laughs> holy people don't do that. You see, suddenly it, has, it, it loses something of its control over me because I will live up or down to what I believe about myself. See, it protects us. Now, if you want to see how core this is to Satan's you know, a strategy against us, let me even point out something little that's here in this passage. In the Bible, a lot of times when the Bible uses a name, it's not just an identifier to say, well, it's this person as opposed to this person. It often gives names as ways that are descriptions. So, for example, think about God. God has many names that he gives of himself in the Bible. And it's not like God saying, well, I can't really choose a name. You know, maybe this one. Let me try this one on. No, that's not what's happening. What God's doing is he's saying, let me tell you about myself, and then I'm going to give you all these names, and they all, they all tell you something about me. They reveal something in my character. And so I have a lot of names because no one name can reveal it all. In the same way, there are actually numerous names and titles and descriptions given to Satan in the Bible. And the one that's here is the name Diabolos in the Greek. It, um, it literally, it's often translated the devil, but it literally translated would be the accuser or one who slanders. 
And what Paul is saying is that we've got to understand that we put on the belt of truth, this belt that says we, it's not what we think, it's in our heart, it's what we know of truth that holds it all together. And the truth that we need to remember, the thing that, that is so vital that Satan's going to attack right off the start is he's going to attack us the truth about who we are in Christ. He's going to accuse us. And he's going to come and say, you know, you're a sinner, you're a failure. Why? Because that's, that's who he is. That's his name. That's his character. That's his identity. He's going to condemn us for our past sins. See, this is an idea that's taught, let's say, in another passage, Revelation chapter 12. Look what it says about Satan. He's the accuser of the brothers who've been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before God. That's what he does. He accuses and if you have in your heart this message that is saying, but I failed and here's what I've done and God could never amuse me, I want you to realize that is not from God, that is not even from your conscience, that is a message that Satan is whispering in your heart. It's, the, it's a battle that, God, that Satan is fighting. This is not of God. What is of God? What is of the gospel? If you are a follower of Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Or go to verse 31, because there's no condemnation, yes, Satan's going to come and attack us, but when he attacks us, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on the witness stand saying, no, this is one that is forgiven, one that is holy, who are you going to believe? See, this is vital because, again, we're going to live up to or down to what we believe about ourselves. If we believe Satan's accusations, we're going to believe, well, God can't use me for anything. We're going to expect ourselves to continue to stumble and fall into the same sins again and again because that's who we think we are. Well, I'm a sinner. That's what sinners do. But if we put on this breastplate of righteousness and we claim our new identity in Christ and we believe that we have the righteousness of Christ, that we've been made holy, that we've been made pure in him, then we should expect ourselves to live in that way. We're going to suddenly realize that now God could use me because this is who I am. But why is this so difficult? And I've thought and prayed about it this week. I realized that one of the reasons is that Satan will often take a truth and twist it and make it a lie that sounds true because it, it seems like it's connected. And what, here's what he does. He takes the truth about God, what God's spirit does. God's spirit speaks to us in conviction and he confuses that with condemnation. Now, here's when you think about this. Conviction is the work of God's spirit in our life that he does for our health and our growth. But the condemnation is not the work of God's spirit. It's the work of, of, the, of the devil who's seeking our destruction. Both involve some degree of pointing out sin in our lives, and that's why he confuses them. But here's the vital difference. When we look at this, we're, we're called to nurture a soft heart towards God, towards the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but at the same point, to have a breastplate that makes us strong to be able to resist against the attack of the enemy. Conviction of sin is, the, is God's conviction of us in dealing with sin that we've never fully repented of before. If we have things that we haven't confessed before him, we haven't repented, Usually it's some ongoing sin, or sometimes you might have somebody, well, I know I, I ask God to forgive me. Well, if you continue to make the choice to go into it again and again, have you really ever gotten serious with God about it in the past? And don't confuse that. Some people will say, well, anytime you point anything out, well, that's condemnation. Well, no, actually not. I've had people that are in, a, in an ongoing pattern of sin. I'll challenge them on it. Well, you're just condemning me. Am I doing the work of Satan there? No. 
Again, the Bible speaks of God's word. There's a place for godly conviction when we're involved in an ongoing pattern of sin that we have not fully repented and confessed before God. And he's pointing that out to bring us to repentance. In fact, look what it says in, in John. It talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The work of the Holy Spirit is a work of conviction. And even as a pastor... It says in 2 Timothy, one of my jobs is to be used of God to help convict people of sin. And so speaking of pastors, it says part of my job is correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So there are times that we speak this out to bring to repentance. But here's the key. Once God has gotten our attention and, and through this conviction and we confess that sin, truly repented before him, asked for his forgiveness, he then calls us to believe that it is forgiven and washed away. The only purpose of drawing to our attention is to get us to that point, but then it's there, it's washed away, it's gone. And so that's what it's, we need to claim the promise of 1 John chapter 1. When it says this, you know, we came to confession, and once we've confessed our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when it talks this cleansing, this deep cleansing, it's completely gone. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's paid for in Christ. And therefore, once we have done this, we can claim, and we should claim the promise of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in anyone that comes and, and speaks these words. This is what you've done. This is who you are. That's not the word of Christ. It's not the word of God. That's the work of the enemy that's seeking to condemn, and there is no condemnation in Christ. That's the truth about who you are in Christ. Now, I know for many of us, it's hard to believe. That's why it's described here as spiritual warfare. And I've talked to many people over the, you know, over the decades where, where it struggles and you've got this sin, you've got this thing that you just can't let go of and it just defines you and it's defined you, you hide it, you've hid it, maybe you've never even admitted it to your family, to your spouse. And, and Satan's, it's his, his attack. And you're in a spiritual warfare, this hand-to-hand -hand combat. And it says you've got to fight this battle and in that battle, you need to identify that voice of condemnation is not from God. It's the voice of the enemy. It's the accuser who's, who's, it's, who's speaking this word to destroy you. And you need to then call that out and to put on the protection of righteousness. See, you might be here and you say, well, God's calling me. If you're feeling that uncomfortable nature, well, the question is, is it something that you've really confessed? There might be someone that God's speaking to you, and if you've never really brought it before God, you've never confessed, you've never really surrendered and said, God, help me to change. That may be God's work of or, or conviction in you, that, so he brings you to confession. And for some, maybe today, that's what you need to do. But if you've done that, if you've brought it before him, then it's, it's, it's been forgiven, it's washed, it's gone, believe it. Put on the breastplate. Believe what God says about you. And again, it will not be easy. It will be a battle. And it's not for some. It will not be a one-time battle. When you have things that have defined you for so long, it's not like, well, I've said it one time. It's there. No, it's a daily battle, putting it on, learning to take God's victory in that part of your life, claiming the righteousness of Christ, struggling to, to reject the lie of the enemy. That's the breastplate of righteousness. Can you put it on? Can you live in it? But that's the first armor. We're going to spend a, a few minutes on the second piece of armor this morning. This dealing not with a breastplate, but now it gets into the shoes. 
the, the feet that are clad with the gospel of peace. It's what's described here in verse 13, 15. As for shoes for your feet, having put on the, right, uh, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, here's one of the challenges. Like the belt that we looked at last week, it's easy to look at this and to say, shoes, you know, that's not armor. You know, that's, you know I've never thought of my shoes as a piece of armor. But like the belt, we have to realize that what we're dealing with is we're thinking of the, the clothes that we wear that share the same name. It's not the same thing. This was a very specific piece of armor. The, you know, the Roman soldiers wore boots, and, and it was something that um, was not like even the regular shoes of that day. It was something that was very specific and considered an essential part of the Romans, uh, Roman soldiers' armor. In fact, these, these boots were considered to be something of a technological breakthrough that gave the Roman army a, a really significant advantage and helped them to have the, you know, the dominance that they did. One uh, first century historian describes them as, as boots that were thickly studded with sharp nails as to ensure a good grip. And here, basically what they were is that they were these, these sandals, but they went up higher than most. Some of them would even go higher that would be stripped on really tight. But the key is that they had these nails that were in the bottom. In a sense, they were kind of like football cleats of today. And, and it would not only allow you to rap, you know, march and were rapid, have good feet, seat, uh, footing, but specifically when you actually got into combat, what would happen is that you know, you're, you're on a hill in northern Italy, and if it rained or if it was a little muddy, or even as it got going and there was a blood was spilled and things got wet, it got slippery. And you could have, be a well-trained soldier, and you could have the great breastplate and the great armor, and you sit there and you'd slip, and next thing you slip and you're on the ground and, and suddenly you're defeated. You're easy prey for the enemy. Now, even as I think of this, let me try to illustrate that. I've, I've, I've asked Eric last minute to, to help me here with a, an illustration. This is why no one sits in the front because I get, you pull them in. So, so Eric, let me ask you, what kind of shoes do you have here? Vans. Okay, Vans, okay, they got rubber soles? Yes, they do. Okay, we're going to do a tug of war. And, uh, you know, you got, you, you're younger than me. I'm, I might have you on some, some weight, so maybe we can have a good chance to beat you. But to illustrate this, I'm going to put on some little booties here, because I've got rubber soles as well, but these booties kind of make me, you know, kind of on the wood, it makes it a little more slippery. And, uh, and we're going to see how we do in this tug of war, all right? So I'm going to, I went to get a, 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 yeah, a rope for this, and I couldn't find my rope, so this kind of works for a rope here today. It's just like... And so, so let me go. I'm going to see if you can, I'm going to see if I can drag you kind of over, over here and you can see if you can drag me to the other side of the piano and say, I think I'm ready, ready to go. Go. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> so, so th thank you. That's a, that's a, that's a big help. So. Now you get the picture, right? Now the fact is, is that I could do this. The, the fact is, is if I can't, if I don't have grips, if these things are, are slippery, he's got, he's, got, um, you know, he's got rubber shoes, I'm never going to win this battle. Because there's a sense that you look at it and you say, okay, it's, the question is not just you know, who's stronger, who's got the better weapon, who's that. It's who's got the better grip, who's got the more stability. And so when we look at this whole picture, it says we have to be armored with this readiness given by the gospel of peace. Readiness, it literally is nimbleness is the idea. And here's what we've got to realize. God's peace, in a sense, keeps us balanced. And our enemy loves to attack us. The question is, can we stand in that attack? He loves to attack us. He loves to get us off balance. He loves to surprise us. 
And the fact is that we can be strong, but if we are not ready, if we don't have this nimbleness that comes with peace, he can knock us off our footing. In fact, even look at this passage. Let me go back. I'm going to put this up here. In Ephesians 6, I want you to notice the purpose of the armor is how it's described. It's four times repeated in just these you know, first couple of verses. Look what it says. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore. What are we called to do? We're called to stand, to stand our ground. When we're attacked by the evil one, we need to be able to stand, stand secure. Now, I want you to think about the battles that you faced, the trials, temptations that you faced. Now, for most of us, when we're on solid ground, good foundation, when things are good in life, you know, I can, I can handle the trials. I can handle the temptations. I understand things, and, and, you know, it's okay. But what happens when we run into the unexpected ground, when unexpected trials, when, when we have loss, when we have, when we have crisis? And suddenly we have the storms that come that make the ground wet, they make it slippery, suddenly we don't understand it. And it's in that setting we often lose our footing. And many of us know, we're, we're doing great, and suddenly the crisis comes and suddenly we're on our back, and man, we're, we're prime candidate. We're, it's, it's easy to take us out. In fact, look what it says about James and how James points this idea that trials and temptation the trials make us susceptible. In James 1, it starts off in the early chapters talking about trials, or early verses, James 1 through, 12, uh, 1, 1 through 12. Verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let it steadfast and have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's, and it's going to continue on. It talks about trials. But then after talking about trials, Next verse, verse 13, it comes out and says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted for God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Why does it go directly from trial to temptation? And here's the connection. It's when we're in the middle of trial, what happens? We suddenly start doubting God. We have things that we know in our mind, but we don't feel them. I don't see the God. I know you're there. I know you're good, but I don't see you that are here. And God, why are you here? And, and, and God, if, if, if my life isn't working, I'm following you and, and it hasn't worked and you're not blessing me, so why even follow you? And suddenly we're vulnerable and we can have everything done, and, but suddenly we slip and we're on the ground. And man, Satan's got us, he's ready to take us out. And so what we need to do is we need to put on the peace and the stability of the gospel. And that's what he talks about, this, you know, the peace, these shoes that come, and they bring the stability, the readiness of, of the gospel of peace. Now, how is it the gospel, peace and the gospel, how do these things work out? Because when the Bible talks about peace, it always talks about peace in the sense that there's two aspects of this peace. That when we think about peace, first of all, it really is a peace that comes of peace with God. Why? We're separated from God. And there's a sense that in the separation from God, that we're at battle with God. And when we're at battle with God, nothing else works in life. And he says, okay, first of all, you need to realize that there's a peace with God that is available to us through the gospel. It's not what we do. It's not somehow we earn God's favor, but we have this peace with God that recognizes our need. And we come to God and we say, God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I agree with you. And I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. And he forgives us and, and he suddenly makes peace with us. He now adopts us as his children, as we saw earlier. So that's why it says in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified with, with, uh, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have peace with him. And because of that peace, through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. See how those things go together? And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, of the glory of God. And so there's this peace with God. And when we have this peace with God, it now gives us the sense of the peace of God. Here's why. Because if you know that you, there is an all-powerful God who loves you and who is involved in your life, who has made peace with you, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. Specifically, he gave his son to die for you. If you understand that, then you can understand that he's in charge of every detail of your life and he's trustworthy. That's what it talks about. In fact, if you go back, I don't have this verse up here, but Romans 8.31 we looked at earlier. What shall we say in these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's no accusation, but then it continues, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And here's what it's saying. Do you understand that while we were God's enemies, God loved you so much that he gave up his son to die for you on the cross. He paid the ultimate price to have a relationship with you. Now you're his child. You have peace with God. You know that he loves you. There's nothing that's going to separate you. He's not going to act out of anger. He's always going to act out of, your, good, good, uh, of your, your best interests. We may not always understand it because we don't know the mind of God. But if he gave you that peace at the cost of his son, everything else he gives you costs him nothing. How will you not also now trust him to give you all things? Not all that you want, but all that's good. See, the peace with God leads to the peace of God. It's this peace of God that recognizes that I can trust God in my life. I have this relationship with the all-powerful God who's my father, who's my daddy, who loves me. He's maybe made my parents, they weren't perfect. They, they let me down. They, this was the perfect dad. This is the perfect father, the one that we would always have. He's never going to let us down. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And he's de demonstrated and proven his commitment his love for you by the great price that he's paid in purchasing that peace. We're beginning celebration of Christmas. And even in the celebration, the Advent candle that Terry lit earlier, what is it? It's the candle of peace. Why do we celebrate peace? Well, because even in Jesus' coming, what were we told about him? In Luke chapter 2, when the angels came, they came and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace amongst those whom he has pleased. He gives us peace with him and then peace. Now, does peace mean an absence of problems? No. It means a peace that transcends the problems, a peace that transcends what we'd face. That's why it says in, in uh, John 14, Jesus said, peace I leave you, not uh, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's not the peace of the world. It says, well, we'll remove all the problems. God says, no, we live in a fallen world. We're going to face that. We're going to face the storms. We're going to face the crises. We're going to face all those things. But do we have shoes on our feet that when they come, when it's muddy, when it's slippery, when everyone else is around us falling, that they're going to let me stand. They're going to give me security. That I realize that there will be troubled times, but my heart shouldn't be troubled because I know who I am in Christ and I trust his goodness. And so he invites us in the midst of the crisis in Philippians 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Come and bring it before God. Let your heart be before him. And as you do so, what is the promise? 
and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, this peace of God that no one around you will be able to understand, this peace of God that people who are unbelievers would say, how do you have peace? It's not that we have joy. It's not that things are good, but I've got a peace that in the midst of the storm, I'm still getting wet. It's still a mess, but there's a peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, this peace that is beyond the ability to understand. My friends, it's a battle, though, to put this on. And there may be some of you here and you're struggling. I don't feel that. That's okay. You understand, this is a battle. And if, especially if I haven't put this on and the storms come, you know, you might be on your back. But it doesn't mean that it's not too late to come back and say, boy, God, I need to put these on now. You may be here and you recognize in all that is being said here and all these, these two arm, pieces of armor, where are you at? And you might be here and God's convicting you of things and you're like, I don't have righteousness, I don't have peace. And it may be God that is convicting you and it's, it's not the condemnation, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit to say, I want you to surrender, that I want this relationship. I'm showing this need so that I can forgive you. For some, it might be a day that you just say, I need to surrender this to God. I need that healing power. I need that forgiveness. I need that restoration. If God's so leading you, I hope and pray that you will do so today, that you'll pray something along the lines of, God, I agree with you in my need. I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. Give me his righteousness. I'd love to talk with you afterwards about that if God's leading you. If you've done that and you are a follower of Christ, I want you to realize that there are a lot of things that Satan will now throw and try to mix conviction and condemnation and God has called us to be people that come out every day and say, no, I'm going to put on the righteousness of Christ and I'm going to be, you know, integrity. There's integrity here. Not integrity of who I am, not that I've always lived it. There's integrity in who I am in Christ. I have the armor on and I know that I can stand. It's an armor that, that is teaching me in this battle to be able to fight against the accusations and to claim the righteousness and identity I have in Christ. If we're in the middle of the struggles, overwhelmed, and we feel like we're on our back, and we can come to God, and we can come and say, God, I don't have that peace. And, and he gives us the encouragement to come and to struggle, and, because there will be times that are bigger than we are. But in the middle of that, it says, you're not going to win this battle on your own. No, put on the strength of the Lord and in his mighty strength. And part of that is coming back and getting this peace with God and this peace of the gospel, and then understanding what that means that God, help me then to learn to apply that in my life so that no matter what happens, no matter how bad the storm, no matter what the mess around me, no matter how deep the attack, that I'm able to, in the day of evil, to stand, to stand firm, to not fall. My friends, God will meet you there. It may be a battle. And there may be many of you here today that you're in the middle of the battle. Don't run away from that. Don't feel guilty that you're struggling with this. It's a spiritual war we're supposed to struggle. That's the norm. And actually, one of the realities is we win by running to the struggle, by acknowledging it, by allowing it to be hard, and fighting this battle. And in that fight, that's where we find the victory. So in that day, we will stand. I hope and pray that you'll learn to stand with me.